It's just great to sing those songs, isn't it, and to be so inspired by uh, music and music that also comes from scripture as well. And it's um, really encouraging just that we would take really note of the words of some of those songs and really claim them for us. So let's pray. Lord God, we just um, thank you for tonight. We thank you that your presence is here with us. Oh Lord, we, we just offer all of us here tonight our whole selves to you as a living sacrifice to you, Jesus. We thank you for what you've done for us, the work that you've brought for us on the cross at Calvary. And, and as we continue to look now at your word, Lord, let us truly be reminded of that incredible cost, but also, Lord, the, the outcome of Calvary, that, that your spirit now lives within us. Lord, that is just so awesome. And the authority and the power that was yours now resides with us, mere human beings. Lord, we're overawed by that. Tonight, my prayer is that we would really, really claim that um, spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives within us, the power and the authority that you've given to us in order to overcome. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Ephesians on a Sunday night. It's been great, hasn't it? It's a great book. Um, we've been learning heaps. We've been telling us uh, Ephesians is a book that tells us about Christ, about his church, about relationships. It tells us how things should be. Unity, diversity, purity, harmony. These are what Paul has stressed as major characteristics of the new life and the new society in Christ. Some of the, the themes that we've really looked at over these last few months on a Sunday evening have been, you know, we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. Uh, we are one in Jesus Christ. Uh, we have spiritual empowerment through Jesus Christ. Uh, we've learnt that we are to live unified and as Christ's body. And we also learnt that we are actually children of light. These are some of the essential truths. And we've been looking for the whole few months at um, Ephesians with the, the catch cry, so to speak, to know it and to live it. And it's interesting when we look at the scripture tonight, in a moment we'll look at that, but, but it, it is a completely different type of scripture than what we've just been looking at over the last few months in Ephesians. Paul brings us down to earth with a real thud with um, what we're looking at in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. And if you just turn to Ephesians now, and we'll just have a read of those scriptures together. And it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, 
and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. That's an interesting passage, isn't it? It's an unusual passage. It, it's, um, it conjures up, I guess, another world for us, a world we're not really particularly familiar with. And, you know, um, Paul, at writing of this, was chained by the wrist to a Roman soldier. And night and day, a soldier was there to ensure that he wasn't going to escape from his prison cell. And Paul was the kind of man that would come alongside anyone and would have talked to this soldier. And as he writes, the soldier's armour suggests a picture to Paul. And the Christian too has an armour. And part by part, Paul takes this armour of the Roman soldier and puts it into Christian terms, which are key and foundational for us. And it's with this armour we are told to to fight a battle. Um, You know, the peace which God has made through Christ's cross is to be experienced only in the midst of a relentless struggle against evil. I wonder how many of us in our everyday life feel that, you know, it is or know in our minds it is true we have the victory in Christ, but sometimes we feel like we're just in a constant battle with life. Well, the truth is we are. And for this, the strength of the Lord and the armour of God are absolutely essential. You know, I've never been to war uh, and praise God, pray, praise God, I never will have to. But I'm told that when you get ready for battle, there are actually three things that you must know. They are essential. The first is that you have to know your enemy. You have to know your enemy. The second is you have to know your equipment. No soldier can go to war unless he knows his equipment and he's checked it, and I'm even told by Mark Docking that's doing her army training that they blindfold you and they pull apart a um, gun and blindfolded you have to put that gun back together again. So you have to know your equipment. And thirdly, you have to know your responsibility with that equipment. 
So number one, your enemy, number two, your equipment, and number three, your responsibility. And so tonight, I'm going to spend a reasonable amount of time on the first one, which is knowing your enemy, a slightly less amount of time on the second, which is knowing your equipment, the armour of God, and a short time on your responsibility. So know your enemy. So there are two opposing views from believers. And the first is that there is a devil in every nook and cranny, under every bed, and every reason for everything in the world is because of the devil. In other words, some are obsessed by the devil. And then there's another view which says, well, we can discount the devil. We can completely ignore him. He really doesn't influence us. He doesn't have much to do with our lives. We just sail on through life pretty well ignorant of his existence. And C.S. Lewis says in the screw tape letters that these are two equal and opposite errors. Satan should be taken seriously because of his immense power, but not too seriously because he has been defeated by Christ and will ultimately perish. So this is the fine line we walk as believers and even those that don't believe, you are still influenced by the devil. So it's a very, very fine line. So know your enemy. As Hitler's appetite in World War II for power and territory grew, his army began to march across Europe. And in some cases, the fight could hardly be called a battle. The German army advanced with its tanks and with technology and advanced weapons. In some of the undeveloped nations, their armies made a futile effort to resist Hitler's aggression, fighting back with spears and even rocks. It wasn't a contest at all because these nations were not equipped for the battle and some of them didn't even understand the nature of their enemy. And the same could be said of Satan and those he opposes. Many of his victims, which include you and I, don't even realise there is a war going on. But as we know, the scriptures tell us in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, that there is a war going on. Finally, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power and clothe yourselves with the full armour of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the enemies. So when I was thinking about this sermon, I really wanted to spend some time nailing the fact that the enemy exists because I just have a real sense in today's materialistic, modern, uh, pretty um, kind of self-centred world, comfortable world, in which I confess as a Christian I live in, I think in general we're pretty ignorant of the devil. But you know, that's exactly how the devil would like it. And so I really wanted to spend some time, and, and in my preparation I was thinking about 
how can I really communicate the truth that the devil does exist? And so I went through the Old and New Testament and there are so many examples in both that show quite clearly that Satan had his influence on very godly people. But the first part or the first time that we actually see Satan was actually in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. And we saw that there was a great battle going on and it was a battle of temptation. And we know the story. The story was that Adam and Eve succumbed to that temptation. And as a result, there was sin in the world and it's had its outworking now uh, for all time. But the thing about the Garden of Eden and the battle there was that God's word, when God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of good and evil, that was his word spoken. The word was ignored. And that's significant. I want you to try and remember that when we come to look at the armour of God because one of our um, equipment, pieces of equipment to fight the battle, to fight temptations that the devil would like to try and tempt us with is by actually being grounded in the word of God. But I just want to take us through a very, very brief um, journey, which is not working. Oh, wait on, do I go like that, do I? <laughs> I'm never any good with this. Why is that not turning? Well, <laughs> someone can come up and help me or rescue me in a moment. But I want to take you through a very brief journey through the Old and New Testament to just give you a real knowledge that Satan did exist back then in the Old Testament, exists in the New Testament and still exists today. In 2 Kings, Kings 6, 15 to 19, we saw that Elisha, the prophet, and I did have these on overheads and I'm sorry, you could have just jotted down these scriptures, but just drop, jot down 2 Kings 6, 15 to 19, and you can go home and read it. But it was a battle against the king of Syria. And when Elisha prayed, his servant looked up and he saw the whole host of heaven, an army from heaven surrounding the king of Syria. And that king was finally overcome. But the, the absolute uh, message from that particular scripture was the fact that Satan and his armies exist, but then so do the armies of light. The kingdom of light exists as well. And that invisible army is also there to protect us. And in the book of Daniel, we move right through the Old Testament. And in the book of Daniel... Daniel was, his, his prayers after 21 days of praying were answered by Michael, the angel, but only after Michael had fought this incredible battle in the heavenlies and overcome the prince of Persia. And you can read that in Daniel 3 and in Daniel chapter 10. Some examples of how Satan influences in the New Testament. We only have to read in Matthew 4, and in Luke 4, one, uh, chapters 1, in both of those, to see the temptation of our Lord by Satan. And we know, of course, that 
The Lord Jesus was tempted, but he was unsuccessful. But Satan was unsuccessful. But if Jesus was tempted, how much more so would we be tempted or are we tempted? We see in Matthew 8, 28 to 29, the Gerasene demoniac, the, the two men that were so uh, filled by demons, it was called a legion, and Jesus had to exercise them. We also learn that in Matthew's Gospel, in 16, verses 16 to 19, uh, Jesus said to Peter that you are the, uh, that I say to you, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not overcome it and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What you lock on earth will be locked in heaven and what you open on earth will be opened in heaven. And so Jesus infers quite clearly in that passage there that the powers of hell are still very real and still wanting to overcome us and attack us. In John 13, 27, it was Satan who entered Judas and uh, caused him to betray our Lord. But lastly, in John 12, 31 to 33, we hear these words. The time of judgment for the world has come, Jesus said, when the prince of this world, or Satan, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up on a cross, I will draw everyone to myself. So we walk this fine line. We know that Satan is real. We know that Satan has an army that is just seeking to kill and destroy us, influence us. We know that he is powerful. Verse 12 in Ephesians 6, verse 12, says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. We wrestle. That conjures up for us not just a weak effort battle, but a real wrestling, a real proactive fight. And therefore, we get the inference that Satan is strong and he is powerful. But we also know that Satan is a slanderer and a deceiver. We know that the word devil is derived from the word to accuse. And this is one of the devil's major activities. He accuses God to man, man to God and man to man. Man doubts God and even believers at times doubt God. And when it comes to human relationships, we can see how rich the field is that Satan has to operate all the potential conflicts and misunderstandings are ripe for his accusing activities. You know, our world lives in a spiritual, moral and societal (coughs) darkness. So if Satan is our enemy and he is real, and we can see that backed up from scripture, how does he attack us in everyday life and can he really hurt Christians? 
I think that is an age-old question. Earlier this year, I went to a seminar by Dr Grant Mullen and he is a, um, well, he started out in his life as a, an anaesthetist and now he's a mental health professional. And he's worked for about 20 years in the mental health field and his clients have been mainly Christians. And he says categorically that Satan does attack Christians and he can really hurt Christians. But most commonly, Satan will take advantage of our weaknesses. Most commonly, he will attack us through our thought life. He will influence our thoughts to sometimes destructive degrees. Think about this. Think about you're buying a second-hand house and on the closing date, you're presented with the deed to the house, which indicates full ownership. The house is now completely yours. Remember, it's a second-hand house. But is it totally cleaned and decorated to your specifications? No, not usually. After you move in, you start the process of cleaning and of decorating. When we become Christians, Jesus, as we've learnt in Ephesians, takes complete ownership of our lives. We become alive in Jesus Christ. But we enter the kingdom broken, filthy and carrying a bag of pain and perhaps for some people who have actively meddled in the occult, intentionally or unintentionally, you have some demons hovering around you. God then starts the process of cleaning us up and emptying out our filthy bag. So we can choose to work with God and accelerate the process or we can choose to resist him, God, and remain in emotional and spiritual bondage. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27 says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Paul's writing this to, a to Christians. In 2 Timothy 2.26 it says, Those who oppose him he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And two more, James 4.7 says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Spiritual warfare or conflict is very real, especially for Christians and for, for those that experience past wounds or depression, ill health, when we're vulnerable, we're very open to the attacks of the enemy. When a person's mind is filled with negative, discouraging thoughts that can't be shut off, it is very easy for Satan to insert even more condemning thoughts or suggestions in amongst the person's own thoughts. The inserted thoughts are intended to magnify the pain 
and to separate the victim from supportive friends, counsellors or most of all God. Satan knows that if he can get us to believe a lie, he can control our behaviour, whether we are inside his kingdom, the world or God's. He's been lying to humans since the Garden of Eden, so he knows how predictably human fall, humans fall for lies. One of the most common ways that Satan attacks Christians is by filling their minds with lies based on negative events of the past. As long as we have unhealed pasts, we are vulnerable to attack and lies. There are an infinite number of lies that control people's minds and behaviours, but these are some of the common ones that torment us. And I just wonder if that's going to work now. No. Is any... Someone up the... Oh, can we get to the lies, Jono? The lies. You are worthless, hopeless and incapable of change. It's all right to sin if no one knows about it. You're unforgivable. God will never accept you. You've run out of chances. You must look out for yourself. God can't be trusted to protect your interests. Keep worrying about your life. Fight your way to your goals. And the big one, you can never be forgiven. So how can you tell if you're being attacked? Well, there seems to be a number of ways we're attacked, but we need to understand that we are attacked all day, every day. The first is the lowest level of attack, and this is what is called the harassment of all believers and non-believers. This is the constant hassle that we all have as we serve God in a fallen world. It can take the form of difficult relationships, health problems, occasional struggles with thoughts and disappointments. And then the next level of attack is when there is a demonic attack that continually fills your mind with unwanted, sickening, disturbing, shocking thoughts that are totally out of character and thoughts you would never choose to have, but they seem to have control. Sometimes um, people say that they have this battle, they can almost identify this battle that's going on in their mind. They commonly negate every good thought that enters their minds through a sermon or a conversation with a friend. The voices may continually tempt you to sin or remind you of events that would push you into sin or danger. Addictions, whether they be sexual, chemical, material like shopping, all come from a combination of past hurts, demonic harassment and spiritual immaturity. So winding up, Satan is the enemy. The Aramaic word for Satan is our adversary. Satan is totally opposed to God. Satan is totally opposed to God's son. Satan is totally opposed to you. And Satan is totally opposed to God's church. And Satan is totally opposed to God's purposes. So how do we overcome this battle? This onslaught. Well, we're told that we have the armour of God and the armour 
that we've just read about is actually the armour that is symbolic of a heavily armoured Roman soldier. So we're told we have to put on this armour. So we cannot just think that somehow life will turn out okay for us. We have to be proactive in our work, in our, uh, in our position in Christ, in our work for the Lord and putting on this armour. And the first thing is it's intentional. We have to stand. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13 tells us, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You know, this shows us standing firm, that Paul is ultimately concerned with our stability as Christians. You know, I think... If any of you are like me, sometimes you're a bit of a wobbly Christian. You have no firm foothold in Christ. And when you wobble, you're easy prey for the devil. You know, when girls, when you put on really high heels and you try and walk and sometimes you, you fall over and you wobble and the immediate reaction for someone walking with you is, oh, take care. Be alert. Be careful. You could fall over. You could hurt yourself. Well, it's the same with our walk. Our walk has to be firm. We have to stand and we do have to be careful. We can be easy prey from the devil, particularly with our minds. Paul wants to see us so strong and stable that we remain firm even under the devil's wiles. But for such stability, we need to develop our character in Christ and the armour of God. So let's go to the armour of God, <laughs> if we can. <laughs> There's the armour of God. Looks pretty, you know... Pretty powerful, doesn't it? Imagine us all walking out of here dressed like that. Well, yeah, that would frighten everyone off really, wouldn't it? But that's the point. It would frighten the devil too. So what do we start with first? Well, we start with the belt of truth. As Roman soldiers geared up, they first put on the girdle or the belt and the belt was the one item to which all the other items were actually attached. The girdle protected the mid to lower abdominal area. So what's the application about this? Well, Jesus said in John 8:32, "You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free." So just as in the laws of the physics, light dispels darkness. The law of, in the law of the spirit, truth sets us free. So when we know the truth that Jesus Christ died for us 
and that in him we have life and life in all its fullness, then we are set free. We have freedom in Christ. The Lord wants us to be free completely from the inside out. Psalm 51, 6 says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you shall make me know wisdom. We should thank God that he has set us free. We need to be reminded of the truth that Jesus has set us free. And so then we have the breastplate of righteousness. One key area the soldier's breastplate protected was the heart. While the heart is one key organ responsible for sending blood through our circulatory system to keep us alive, our spiritual lives can be deadened if our hearts are not right with God. And you know, it's our heart that harbours our hurts, our pain. It harbours our soul. And the soul is the seat of our will. So if we have the breastplate of righteousness, if we are reminded that we have been made right with God, our heart does not condemn us. We need to keep reminding ourselves that Christ brought righteousness for us through the cross at Calvary. 1 John 3.21 says, Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, we then have confidence towards God. No wonder Satan wants to make us feel guilty all the time. Our relationship with God is so damaged when we view God as an unforgiving taskmaster whose only interest is to punish us and weigh us down with guilt whenever we do wrong, then we crumble. But we need to remember in Philippians 1.6 it says, He that began that good work in you will complete it until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's Son, Jesus, purchased our righteousness for us on the cross at Calvary and his righteousness is a gift. We need to remember that and guard our hearts continually. Guard our hearts with the fact that we have been made right. We do not live in guilt and shame any longer. We put on the helmet of salvation, breezing through this quickly. You know, a well-designed helmet will uh, protect you from various angles of attack. It's no, um, you know, coincidence that we now have to wear a helmet when we ride our bikes. It is no coincidence. And, and I've taken up a little bit of bike riding and I stopped when it was magpie season because the magpies were just unbelievable. And then someone told me, well, you actually put eyes all over the helmet. So much to the embarrassment of my family, I, I, I had these huge eyes all over my helmet. But the funny thing was, the, as I was riding my bike, the Maggies would, would start to swoop, but they'd see these eyes on my helmet and they would take off again. Well, the helmet protected me. And the application of this, of course, is what we've been saying tonight, is that the devil's greatest battleground is in our minds. 
This is the area that the enemy wants to attack the most and we must never forget that we have been purchased, our salvation has been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And we, if we have given our hearts to Jesus, for those of you tonight that have never done that, I would love you to consider the fact that the greatest life you can ever live is life eternally with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be reminded when those attacks from the enemy come that no, I can stand firm because I am a child of God. I have salvation. I have been saved, purchased by his blood now and forever. And and the armour of God tells us that we have the sandals of the gospel of peace. You know, some historians credit footwear as one of the greatest reasons why the Roman army was so victorious over its enemies. The Roman soldier was equipped with footwear that had spikes on the soles which protected them with a strong enough stance and balance and that gave them a superior posture in battle on hills and uneven terrain. So we have the sandals that have the gospel of peace. And we are told that um, when we are walking in the peace of God, that we, um, we are protected. You know, have you ever noticed that when you stub your toe, that, that your whole foot hurts? You ever notice that? It's just very painful, isn't it? So when our feet are not honouring God, if we're not walking and proclaiming the gospel of peace, we're hurting ourselves and we're hurting God. So we need to keep our mind alert, not get sloppy, and remember that it's an awesome privilege to walk and spread the gospel of peace. We have the shield of faith. Every Roman soldier was equipped with a shield that effectively deflected arrows. It it was a huge shield, historians tell us, sometimes as big as the man themselves. It was covered in leather, soaked in water, so that when the arrows, which were tipped in tar and lit, hit the shield, the shield will put the the flaming arrows out. Now, the flaming arrows have been likened to what Satan will try and, you know, try and fling at us. And usually, once again, there are all of those messages that he tries to, you know, get to us in our mind. And so we're to have faith, faith in God, faith that Jesus Christ has overcome. You know, in John 16, 33, it says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world, said Jesus. In 1 John 4, verse 4, it says, He who is in us, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. And In John 10.10, it says, The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come 
to give you life and life in all its fullness. But we can only have this life through faith in Jesus Christ. We must believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and that faith becomes like this incredible shield. And lastly, we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, I'm amazed time and time again when I'm with somebody and you can be listening to the story, you can be giving them any number of strategies to help them overcome. But when you speak the Word of God into that person, there is an incredible power and the person that you speak to cannot, cannot ignore it. They cannot come against it. It cuts like a double-edged sword. It is life, the sword of the spirit. You know, nowadays we have so many types of metals there all sorts of carbons moulded together, a mixture of different metals to make strong metals. We don't want to mix the word. We want the word to remain pure, a pure metal. A real sword can cut through anything, one that is pure. And so... We have this amazing, wonderful armour of God that is available for every one of us. And so Paul says, how are we to be responsible with this? I'm going to spend one minute on this. How are we to be responsible with this incredible treasure that we have, which is the sword, the armour of God? Well, we have to pray And we note three things that he said about prayer. It must be constant. Our tendency is to only pray in the great crises of life, but it is daily prayer. It is through daily prayer that we find daily strength. So our prayer needs to be constant. And our prayer needs to be intense. Prayer demands our full concentration. And our prayer must be unselfish. The Jews have a saying, let a man unite himself with the community in his prayers. We must not just focus on prayers for ourselves, but we must focus on prayers for others and for taking us as representatives of Christ with the full armour of God out into daily battle to preach the good news. You know, we have the Great Commission and that Great Commission is recorded in a number of Gospels. But in, in the Great Commission, we're told that we've got to go out into the world and to preach the good news, to heal the sick, it says in Mark 16. So our authority, our responsibility, sorry, is that we should pray. And lastly... Our responsibility is to know our authority. You know, we do have authority. We were told that what we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Sorry, what we bind 
Whatever we lock on earth will be locked in heaven. Whatever you open on earth will be opened in heaven. The Great Commission gives us Jesus' authority. And how often and how little, how often we so little use that authority. How often we so little pray. How often we so little use the authority that God has given to us in order to overcome this world. I want to wind up by by really saying and pleading with you, remember we do have an enemy. He's real and he loves to attack you. Don't be deceived. He prowls like a roaring lion. Number two, know your weapons. Know your equipment. We've been given this incredible gift if we know Jesus Christ and we should use it. I get discouraged in my own life how little I understand the power that is within me. And I get discouraged when I meet Christians that underestimate the enemy but underestimate the authority that they have, the power that they have. Christ bought that power for us at an incredible cost. We should not use it lightly. We should stand firm, standing daily with the armour of God. The whole book of Ephesians is a call to go out. It's a call to go out in authority. It's a call to go out in power. The whole book of Ephesians tells us who we are in Jesus, tells us who we are collectively as a body in Christ. And it tells us what this incredible power collectively can do in the world when we know the enemy, when we have the tools, the um, armour at our, at our um, disposal to go out, to make a difference in the world. There should be nothing holding us back. Oh, my prayer tonight is that as we culminate this series in Ephesians, you'll really take stock of what God has done for you through Christ what he has given to you through the community of believers, the um, victory he's already won for you at the cross, but how we do have an enemy we need to be aware of, but that even there we have overcome through Christ's victory, through the armour of God. Let us go out into the world un unimpeded, making a difference for Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given to us so much, so many riches. We acknowledge tonight that we are in a battle and I pray for anyone here tonight that really feels the attacks of the enemy so strongly. I pray that tonight they will make a decision to be proactive and to do something about it, to claim their birthright. And I pray that each one of us every day will be mindful of the enemy 
but even more mindful of the fact that you have overcome through the blood of the Lamb. I pray that you will strengthen us with the armour of God, that we will go out into this world truly making a difference. In Jesus' name, amen.